Welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces WFIU listeners to interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world. I'm David Brent Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is trumpeter and jazz educator Ferez Witted. Ferez Witted comes from an Indianapolis family filled with talented and widely noted musicians. He's recorded several CDs as a leader, including two for Motown Records, and worked with a host of noted jazz artists, as well as The Temptations, rock performer John Mellencamp, and other popular pop and R&B figures. He earned his master's degree in jazz studies while studying with David Baker at Indiana University, taught at Ohio State University, and in 2001 became director of jazz studies at Chicago State University. His most recent CD, Transient Journey, was released in 2010 on the Owl Studios label. Ferez, welcome to Profiles. Glad to be here, David. You grew up in a very musical family, to say the least. It's putting it mildly. Your mother, Virtue Hampton Witted, sang and played bass, and she was part of the Hampton Sisters group. Your father, Thomas Witted, was a drummer who worked with the legendary Indianapolis trumpeter Freddie Hubbard. And your uncle is Slide Hampton, who's a renowned trombonist and arranger. And that's just the start of what's been described as Indianapolis's royal family of jazz. It would take us a while just to get through all the talented people in your family who play uh, what was it like to grow up in that family? You, you you always found someone practicing somewhere in the house. So uh, you never had a lot of quiet time. That was never a problem. We all got along great. Everybody loved music and uh, pretty much shared in the experience. It's a great time. If you got in trouble, how were you punished? Did you have to practice more, or were you grounded from playing? <laughs> no, I think it was the uh, the belt. <laughs> had nothing to do with timeouts. These were the old days. There's none of that Dr. Spock, you know. They'd come at you with a, with a, a belt or uh, something that would leave a mark. <laughs> <laughs> so no extra practice sessions. Right, right. How did you happen to hit upon the trumpet as your instrument of choice? Well, I was about nine years old. I was looking for, everybody had an instrument at that time. And I uh, said, it's about time I I get involved in this. I I don't know. It was in the closet. It was the first one I grabbed. And it felt like home. So uh, it it worked for me right off the bat, my my, uh one of my brothers showed me the uh, C major scale. And after that, he told me to get lost. <laughs> and, that, and that was my, my first stint with uh, a teacher. <laughs> How many hours a day did you have to practice as a kid when you were learning to play the trumpet? Well, we never really, really set, you know, like a time schedule. You just jumped on it, stayed with it until you needed to do something else. It's pretty much the way it is now. You don't really think about the hours you spend doing it. It's just when you have free time, that's what you do. Did you ever think about pursuing any other careers, or was music pretty much your first calling all along? Well, I didn't think about a career, per se. You know, I just knew I loved music, and uh, that was what I was doing. I didn't think in terms of, I'm going to be doing this in, you know, 20, 30 years from now. I didn't think like that, but uh, I envisioned myself performing, you know, but uh, it didn't sink in where it was like this is my job, my career, work, because it never felt like that. It was just, it was like life. 
and I knew I was going to keep keep on living, so I just assumed it'd be doing that. Did you perform much with with the members of your family? Yeah, well, you know my um, my mother and her brothers and sisters. They had the family band, which my grandfather led and carried them all over the the country, performing uh, carnivals and shows. But um, the I guess the second wave of that was uh, family got into religion, church, and we all started to uh, follow that road. But while in the church, one of my uncles, he started a jazz band, and a good number of the family was involved in that. So that was the second wave of the family band. And I started playing with them when I was about 13, 14. So you were playing with a jazz band that was kind of a family jazz band that was within a church setting? Yeah, yeah, but you didn't know it because we were playing tunes by uh, Miles and Train and uh, Duke Ellington and, you know, everybody. And you were playing this in a church? Not during the service, though, but, you know, like uh, for the talent shows, for the variety shows, for the little functions, church socials. Yeah, we had every opportunity we would be playing. Uh, there was some tension, it seems, about that at times. Some folks in the church didn't feel like jazz belonged in the church. That's why I was kind of interested when you mentioned that. Yeah, well, some folks don't feel any music belongs in uh, in the church if it's got a bounce to it or a little lively beat. And, if it swings. Yeah, right. But we all know, what was that, David danced. <laughs> so... He had to have a beat to do that. That's right. Besides the musical instruction that you got growing up in your family, what were some of the values and ideas and experiences that you got from them or had with them that that shaped you as a person? Well, my mother, she always stressed melody. She said, always listen for the melody, always play, you know, the melody and always write a melody. You know, if you're going to have music, people have to be able to recognize where it's coming from. It has to be something that's singable. That always stuck with me. Plus, my mother was a stickler for professionalism. Be on time, dress properly, don't call the band leader names. All those little rules, that all stuck with me. And, uh, She was uh, definitely my biggest influence as far as uh, at that early age. She had a a vast record collection of various styles of music. I'm talking about classical, Latin, uh, jazz, country, anything you can name, Uh, Asian music, Indian music. I don't know where she found all these albums, but she had everything and she would encourage us all to listen to as much as possible. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people always think, assume maybe that jazz artists just grew up listening to jazz, and that was it. But so many times you talk to jazz artists, and they actually grew up with a really broad palette of, of musical um, experiences and exposures. What about your father? Do you, What do you feel like you learned from or inherited most from your father? <laughs> My father was was a true jazz musician of that time. And uh, most people who come from that time, they'll know what I'm talking about. 
So he had his positives and he had his negatives. One thing I remember about my father, I was practicing a line by uh, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, one of those tunes, Crazyology or something like that. In the bridge, I played a wrong note, you know, out of a thousand notes. And he came running downstairs from his nap and started screaming at me, no, no, it goes like this, whatever it was. He started humming it, and he was humming the whole line. And he always told me that the drummers have to know the melody. They have to be able to sing the melody. And that's something he always did. In all those bebop tunes, he knew all the heads. That's a testament to my great playing otherwise, because he slept through everything else. Who were some of your other musical heroes and inspirations while you were growing up? The the two major influences in my family. My oldest brother, Tommy, who played the trombone, but secretly he wanted to play the trumpet. But uh, he was an excellent trombone player. And uh, he he's the one who really taught me how to play the trumpet. Uh, my brother, Leo, who was next to him in age, uh, he was the trumpet player. But he was the one that showed me how to play the C major scale and then told me to take a hike. Uh, but Tommy spent a lot of time with me and uh, showed me how to uh, learn melodies, uh, to learn other scales, to uh, learn to read. Uh, I knew how to read before I joined the, the school band. He he was the one that spent a lot of time with me. So it's biggest influence in that respect. Now, my uncle Maceo, who is Slide's brother, Slide Hampton, he's the one who inspired me to really want to be good. What he did was was very special because early on at a time, Uncle Slide wanted Uncle Maceo and another uncle, Russell, to go to New York with him. They were like the three best in the family. They practiced all the time. I mean, that's all you heard from their rooms. They worked out all the time. Uncle Slide was ready to go, and he wanted them to go with him. But they uh, chose a different path. Like I said, a lot of the family uh, became very spiritually minded and uh, started to uh, try to live a different kind of life. And Uncle Maceo was the first, and he became a minister. And for a while, that sort of uh, created a little friction between the, uh, uh, like, Uncle Mace and Uncle Slide, because Uncle Slide really wanted him to go to New York, because Uncle Maceo was very, very good. And so was Uncle Russell. Matter of fact, Uncle Slide said that they were better than he was. And we know where he is now as far as ranked in the, the, the archives of jazz legends. We were at a talent show, church talent show, and uh, Uncle Maceo still played back then. Got up and played one of the baddest solos I ever heard. And for this particular event, he came into town. He, he had moved to Detroit by then, but he came into town to be a part of this performance. Uh, 
and he didn't have time to rehearse with us, didn't have time to go over anything, didn't even have time to warm up. Uh, he and Aunt Phoebe and the rest of his kids got there just in time to go to the show, and then we get on the stage, and he takes this solo that blew my mind. And after that, I said, I want to be like that. So that was kind of a key moment for you and your you're wanting to be to to stay on the musical path. And it sounds like such an interesting musical family. Can't all these all this talent, all these different poles and directions towards, you know, the professional jazz world in New York City and then these spiritual poles and everything. It sounds like you came out of a really interesting kind of cauldron of talent and passion that family. Yeah. Who were some of your other uh, musical heroes and inspirations while you're growing up beyond your family? Well, it really, as far as uh, musically, it really started with Louis Armstrong. For some people, that's sort of cliche, you know. Well, you got to say Louis Armstrong, but it was honestly Louis Armstrong. You know, I had my mother, like I said, she had tons of albums, and uh, we had a lot of Louis Armstrong, and I listened to him and his his passion for playing and, and every note I heard from him was it just it was about freedom that's what jazz is to me anyway it's about freedom that creative uh, component that really makes it what it is uh, every note he played spoke to that and it was very proud you know and back in the uh, you know, this is in the late 60s, you know, going into the 70s. We still had a lot of social problems, you know. And uh, Louis Armstrong's playing was a, a symbol for me of where we need to be going, you know. So he was my biggest inspiration when I first started. And then... Uh, I just kept, I really followed suit. I just went down the line. Although I skipped over Roy Eldridge, I went directly to uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And he was my next model. And then from Dizzy, it was Miles and Freddie. And it kind of stuck. Well, you've brought in some music for us to listen to uh, from your CD, Transient Journey. Uh, what's the first track that you're going to play for us, and why did you choose it? Uh, we're going to play the, the Truth Seeker because that's the, that's the tune I wrote for my uncle, Maceo, who uh, was my biggest inspiration. And uh, he always said, seek the truth, follow it no matter which side it falls on. And uh, that's the model I try to live by.
trumpeter Ferez Witted performing his composition, The Truth Seeker, from his CD, Transient Journey. You know, Ferez, Freddie Hubbard is somebody whose spirit really seems to hover a little bit over this CD of yours, Transient Journey. And I think uh, Neil Tessert even mentions Freddie in the liner notes. Did you get to know him well? He's another musician from Indianapolis. Can you talk more about the, any kind of relationship you had with Freddie Hubbard? The first time I met Freddie was in Indianapolis, and he he never, never goes back to Indianapolis, ever, you know, barely ever. But this one, I, I must have been, when was that? It was in the 70s. I know I was too young. I uh, borrowed my brother's ID, his license, and I uh, drew a mustache on my face with a little uh, charcoal pencil. You know, and this is something I, I never, ever did. You know, I was Johnny Straightlace. So I was nervous. You know, so I'm, I'm sweating and my mustache is running. And, and now I've got a little Fu Manchu thing going on by the time I get up to the door. But they let me in anyway. That was the first time I was I, I got to hear Freddie live. And after the show, I was able to go up and talk to him. And he remembered my, you know, that my father played with him and he was asking me about him. But uh, he was very cool. And that was the first time we met. But after that, you know, whenever I had the chance, whenever we were in the same city, we would definitely try to see each other. Indianapolis had a really thriving jazz scene for many years in the mid-20th century, you know, that your your family was a part of, and it produced all these great players like Freddie Hubbard and Wes Montgomery and David Baker and J.J. Johnson. What was the musical environment like there in the mid to late 1970s when you were a teenager there? By then, I guess all the, the, the really hot jazz spots had closed, but... Uh, there were still some very, very fine musicians still in the city. Uh, Jimmy Cole was like the elder statesman there at that time. He had replaced Jay McShane. Here he replaced Charlie Parker in Jay McShane's big band. He was basically the mainstay in the jazz world in, in the city. But uh, there was also Pookie Johnson and Russell Webster and Clifford Ratliff and... Uh, Buddy Parker and Paul Parker were still there, but uh, there were so many musicians, and they. I was able to play in Jimmy Cole's big band, and uh, I met a great deal of them there and learned quite a bit, you know, when I had that opportunity. Oh, sure, yeah. If you're a teenager playing with all the, Jimmy Cole and all those guys, that that must have been pretty pretty exciting. You went to DePaul University for your undergraduate degree. Uh, so in the early 1980s, you're you're done with college, at least the undergraduate level of college. What were the choices facing you at that point, and how did you decide what to do next? Well, by then, I knew music was going to be my life from a career standpoint at that time, you know. So uh, what I decided to do was I knew I'd, I wanted to teach, and I wanted to perform, but uh, I knew I didn't just want to go jump out there right now because to teach, you had to have your uh, master's at least, and I didn't want to stop school. And plus, I was going to go to Indiana University when I first left 
high school, but I had I was accepted. But there was a, a, a choir teacher at Shortridge High School where I attended who convinced me that I should go to DePaul University. And, and I learned a great deal at DePaul, and I had a lot of great opportunities because uh, it was a liberal arts college. And by that, I had the opportunity to play in the orchestra, the concert band, the jazz band, the brass quintets, and everything under the sun, which at Indiana University, you wouldn't have those sorts of opportunities because when they put you in a group, you better hope you can hang with the guys that are in there because the guys over in the other section are going to be bad just as much. You know, orchestra had some top-notch classical musicians and jazz bands. We had some very, very talented people here. So I, I, I knew I wouldn't have those opportunities. So I decided to go to DePaul first. Then I came over here to uh, IU, and that was uh, the where I really wanted to end up because of David Baker. What was it like studying with David? You were here, I think you studied with him for about four years, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, and and I tried to stay longer. <laughs> he helped me to define my, my uh, vocabulary, you know, and really helped me to find my voice in, uh, in music, you know, in jazz. You have, at this point in your life, a pretty deep background in jazz education. You, you earned a master's in jazz studies at IU, studying with David Baker. You taught at Wabash in Ohio State. Uh, and since 2001, you've served as the director of jazz studies at Chicago State. As a jazz educator, what do you think are the best ways to get kids and students interested in jazz these days? Listening. That's the biggest thing. Uh, listening and experiencing the music as much as possible. Uh, you know, studying is a big part of the music, but if they don't listen to it, and I mean listen to the masters, and, and if they don't experience it by going to see as many of those masters that were still around, you know, when I went, and the ones that are still now still, you know, playing today, hearing them and then hearing the best possible musicians they can and not just really good musicians but the ones with the right attitude the right concept uh, because that that's such a big part of the development of the music this music's always been associated with uh, the culture that it comes from in in the times you know what's going on and where things are going and and jazz has and you know getting getting away from that, and and it, and it became for a while very uh, much like math and science, and you just study it for the sake of it. And to me, jazz has always been associated to life, and uh, that's what it represents, you know. And when it first came on the scene, when it was really evolving the focal point of what everybody was striving for was unity and freedom. Uh, you know, from, you know, jazz came from the African-American culture. And during that time, when it was evolving, the, the biggest pressure was, you know, growing up in America. It spoke to freedom. That's what it was about, that creative 
voice that was proud, that was uh, that had a purpose, that had direction, that had uh, life, that had truth and wisdom and everything that they were trying to say black people didn't have. It had all of that. And it was something that could not be denied. Uh, African uh, Americans were able to go overseas in the, you know, the 40s. And that's unheard of. And uh, we represented the world. That's a beautiful thing. Well, you've got some more music for us to listen to now uh, from your CD, Transient Journey. What are we going to hear? And what kind of mood or idea were you trying to convey with this piece? This is a title cut. And basically what I was trying to speak to uh, was the evolving process we go through in life and uh, how it may seem as though it's all over the place and it has no direction, but uh, the melody holds it together. And it shows that it does have direction. It has purpose like everybody's life has purpose and meaning. And we have to find that, you know, that's the struggle is to find out what it is we are really trying to do here. And, and hopefully it's something positive and something that will contribute to the, you know, the prosperity of, of everybody else. It's not just about us. It's about everybody. And that's what Transient Journey is trying to say. Trumpeter Ferez Witted performing Transient Journey from his CD, Transient Journey. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Ferez, what are some of your other interests and pursuits, and how do they feed into your life and work as a musician? Well, I have a son, and his name is Maceo, and uh, try to spend a lot of time with him. I uh, had the opportunity to coach, uh, to help coach his football team for about three years. Basketball and the little activities that he would be involved in, I tried to be out there with him as much as possible. I, I grew up playing basketball, you know, little activities like that, trying to stay active, working out. But as far as a, a hobby, 
<laughs> Musicians don't have hobbies. You know, they practice. They, they, you know, next thing you have to do is you have to learn how to play the piano. You have to learn how to work some musical software. You have to, you know, learn how to uh, get a gig. <laughs> you don't have a hobby. I, I don't know too many musicians that have time for hobbies. In the 1990s, you made two CDs for a very legendary record label, uh, Motown. What was that experience like for you? Wow, that was educational. Motown had some brilliant people working for them. And Mojazz, the jazz component of Motown, they had some very, very bright people who, who had strategies for promotion and and creative ideas about getting the music to the people. You know, now some of them had no, they didn't know anything about jazz, but they knew about the business. You know, now when I signed with them, Steve McKeever was the uh, president, but he knew what he was doing. Bruce Walker, same thing. Both of them very bright. They had a... um, a lot to do with the success of those two projects. But once again, as soon as I signed, Steve McKeever takes off. And I don't know what that was about, but then Bruce Walker took over. Bruce was still cool, but it was different. And uh, what they ended up doing, and a lot of it had, it wasn't Bruce's idea because a new president of Motown came into the picture. Andre Harrell, and he was about making money fast and quick. And really, I guess initially it was about spending money quick, but not on us, on, you know, shows and movies and parties and everything else. The musical side of that ended up doing very well uh, as far as smooth jazz. I really didn't sign with them to be a smooth jazz musician they tried to steer everything that way. So I guess about the second CD I did with them was geared more towards that. I caught a lot of heat for that, but I don't really mind because I enjoy music and I have no problem putting out a CD with, with some grooves and backbeats on it because I grew up listening to that. You know, Earth, Wind & Fire, Cool in the Gang, you know, Stevie Wonder. I love that music. So um, I didn't have a problem with that, but... It was a good experience, all in all. After your last CD from Motown, you went 14 years without releasing another. What kept you from putting out a new release during that period? Life is interesting. I think what it was, I I got married right before those CDs came out with Motown. And marriage is a wonderful institution. If everything is on the right track. And uh, sometimes two people just aren't traveling the same road. And it has nothing to do with one's not cool and the other is or anything like that. So uh, my ex-wife and I, we just weren't on the same path. And and that had a lot to do with uh, my creative thought process. Around this time, you also worked with Hoosier rock and roll star John Mellencamp. Uh, as a jazz trumpeter, what kind of role did you play in his band, and what was it like to go out on the road with a big rock act like that? John Mellencamp, 
He's really a beautiful, thoughtful individual. He wanted something different on this one CD, and uh, he came up with rock and roll trumpet. That's what I was calling it. But he, he wanted me to hang it out and blow with some fire and heat. But what he did to me, we go in the studio and record the the tune. You know, he tells me, I want energy, I want drama, I want, you know, give me this and then break it down and then give me some more heat and fire again at the end. So I said, okay, I can do, you know, so a couple takes, bam, there it is. And then after it's all said and done, you know, I go home and everything. Then I get a call. Hey, we're going to do some, you know, going out on the road. We're going to do some hits. John wants you to go with us. I said, oh, yeah beautiful i'm there so i go to the studio they say okay we're going to do that song you know that you did the solo on and and uh we want you to do that solo i said beautiful the same same amount of time same space you know solo space said yeah that exact that same solo i said that same solo yeah that that space i'll blow a nice solo in there no that exact solo and i said Oh, you want me to do the exact solo? I said, yeah. I said, well, jazz musicians don't think like that. You know, we don't. I said, well, you do now. So I had to go learn that solo all over and play it everywhere we uh, we had concerts. It was it was fun. If you could put together a dream band from the history of jazz, who would be in Ferez Witted's band and why? Oh Lord, have mercy! I'd have to go home and do some. Uh, some meditation on that one. You know, there's so many musicians. I love individuality. So one guy does this one thing, and that's his thing, and another guy does this. That's the beauty of it. I can give you five, six piano players, you know, that I would want. Monk, you know, uh, Art Tatum, uh, uh, Bud Powell, you know, Herbie, uh, uh, Bill Evans. You know, the list goes on and on, just... And, and that's on every instrument. You know, saxophone, I just lose my mind. You know, Train, Sonny Stitt, Sonny uh, Rollins, you know, on and on and on. You know, Bird on the alto, Cannonball, and Eric Dolphy, and, you know, and they're just all so different. But that's the beauty of the music is individuality. That's what makes jazz special, and that's what we have to get back to instead of everybody trying to sound the same. Everybody's goal was to be themselves, to be different, you know, to be who they are and let that voice speak as an individual. That's beautiful and bring everybody together and everything work together, but everybody having their own identity, that's life. How have things changed over the past 20 years for professional jazz musicians like yourself when it comes to getting gigs and marketing your music and things like that? That's technology, the Internet. Nothing's the same. You have to hustle in different ways. You have to be very, very creative. You've got to look at the times, and you have to uh, adjust to everything that's going on out there because everybody's thinking differently. And then you have the economy to look at on top of that, so you have to find new ways to market yourself to make yourself appealing to uh, people who are becoming more well, a lot more picky. Uh, you're in Chicago now, a city that has a very rich jazz heritage and history of its own. What's it like as a jazz musician coming into a new scene like that? Are people welcoming? Are they challenging? How does a musician work to fit into a, a new city's music scene? Well, Chicago is, is very, very cool. Understand, though, every city has 
their own cliques. The studio guys, the free jazz guys, the improvisers, the club date guys, the wedding band guys. And uh, sometimes you can't fit into all those different pockets. Well, Chicago has other groups like the church musician, the classical musician. They have many different pockets, but I've I've been blessed. Uh, I was able to read. I can play uh, uh, in different styles, and I enjoy doing that. In just about all those different arenas, I've been able to participate, and they have been more than friendly and welcoming. Well, we're going to hear some more music now from your CD Transient Journey. We're going to hear uh, a tune called Sunset on the Gaza. Can you tell me what the inspiration was behind this composition? Yeah, I, I listen to a lot of NPR. And uh, one program that inspired this piece was a, a piece on uh, the uh, Gaza Strip and what was going on over there. And they were talking about a father who had to explain to his daughter not to be afraid in light of the bombings and uh, the oppression that Palestinians, that they were going through at that time. And uh, as I was thinking about it, this is, I'm thinking of a little girl, you know, five, six, and none of that makes sense to her. And uh, I wrote this song as peaceful and as beautiful as it is to me, you know, what I was trying to say in it. People say, where did you get this from thinking of that? Well, what I was thinking of was what I would like that little girl to see, you know, as far as at dusk when the bombs settle and it's quiet, that she could sit wherever she was staying and look out at the sunset and for one small second have that kind of peace and not feel the kind of pain that she feels every day. Trumpeter Ferez Witted performing Sunset on the Gaza from his CD, Transient Journey. Ferez, you know, some people really bristle when there's any kind of overt political allusions in jazz or uh, if issues of race are brought up. They, they get uncomfortable. Uh, what do you say to people who might react with a just-play-the-music kind of attitude? <laughs> well, if they say that, they hadn't been listening to the music. <laughs> That's what the music's all about. The music is very, uh, if you use the word political, 
it's it's very involved in what is going on. It's supposed to speak to what's going on. You know, if it doesn't, it's not real. You know, after a while, people become so motivated by, well, just, you know, keep the peace and play something nice and, and, and everybody will, will, will buy it and, and it'll be accepted by everybody. And, you know, I'm not trying to rustle feathers. That's, that's not my intent, but I'm trying to be real. And uh, above all, it is the responsibility of an artist is to be real. I'm not, you know, I, I, you don't have to bring the dark side of everything. I, I prefer to try to find solutions and to present those, but they have to pertain to something that's going on. Like right now, you know, we, we have to do something to move this along in the right direction. Well, you know, two of your compositions on transient journey, speaking of kind of a, a political kind of thing, but I think more than that, have titles that allude to the victor of the 2008 U.S. presidential election, Barack Obama, uh, who, from what I understand, is also somewhat of a jazz fan. What led you to give those pieces those titles? If you're uh, an African-American in America today and you live to see a black man become the president of the United States, everybody should write a tune. <laughs> Everyone should write a tune, not just the, the, the black America, but America in general, because even though we have some major, major problems still, let's face it, but for that to happen, I'm so thankful you know, because a lot of people can become president, but this man, he's done the work and he represents the country well. I'm not saying he's perfect, but he's probably one of the most perfect presidents I've seen and uh, or, or that I've read about. So um, he inspires me. He is probably right about now next to my uncle my biggest hero, and I wish him all the success in the world because as his success goes, ours goes. And so I dedicated those uh, those tunes to him, and I hope he gets a chance to hear them. <laughs> it seems like for the past 50 years now, uh, maybe even longer, we've heard writers and fans and sometimes even musicians debate whether or not jazz is dead. And yet jazz seems to keep happening in, in one way or another. Uh, what do you think it is about jazz that's given it this enduring quality and appeal? It's music. It's life. You, as long as there's breath in people, there's life. And as long as there's life, there's going to be music. You know, and jazz is, you know, it's creative. It's, it represents life. You know, it just... It's as evolving as we are, and uh, that never dies unless we die. But as long as we're living, jazz will live. Our guest has been trumpeter and jazz educator Ferez Witted. Ferez, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. So glad to be here, David. Thank you. For WFIU, I'm David Brent Johnson. The program you just heard was recorded in June of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash.
Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.